Hey there, language lovers. Shannon here with my co-host, Benny Lewis, for this latest episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. So today, we're chatting with Eliza Simpson, a voice and accent coach who's worked with the stars. She's been involved with projects such as Netflix's Tall Girl, was a speaker at Women in Language, and has been involved in a number of other fascinating and impressive projects I'm sure she'll tell us all about. In this episode, we talk about techniques and mechanics you learn to pick up accents, how learning the accent of your language language can help you speak it better, the visual aspects of learning the sounds of a language, how to deal with difficult sounds in a language, the difference between accent and dialect, what vocal coaching looks like, and tips for improving accent and pronunciation. If you enjoy this episode of the podcast or the podcast in general, we always love hearing from you. So please leave us a review. You can share your thoughts over at languagehacking.com slash review. Now on to our interview with Eliza. The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com forward slash 43. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. So today we're chatting with Eliza Simpson, a voice and accent coach who's worked with the stars. So why don't we just go ahead and get started? How did you get involved in accents and dialects? Well, I started my accent dialect journey as a performer, and I was uh, in a training conservatory for acting. One of the things that they require is a pretty extensive uh, basis in speech. Um, and so a lot of times that's speech specifically for the stage, um, but they, they do require that you kind of learn the IPA and you learn the anatomy of the speech instrument, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm there in that classroom and I have this really wonderful teacher, like so many of us do, who pulled me aside after class and said, you seem to like this. This seems to excite you. Um, there's a teacher training program. She didn't sell it in this particular way, but essentially it was a teacher training program. She's like, there's a training program. It's in New York City. I think you should go. And I felt like I'd been tapped uh, to go off on a quest and do this magical thing. So I said, yes, of course. Um, and that's how I started. I started with a, uh, speech training program called Knight Thompson speech work. Um, they still do the same trainings. Um, and those trainings kind of culminate in a teacher certification. So I, I, I got started there. And I think there was a moment in that training when I, I looked at all of the potential sounds that the, the human instrument can make and that have been recorded in language. And I was so kind of blown away. It's like looking into the ever-expanding universe. I like looked at all of this huge wealth and I thought, wow, that's overwhelming. And then the teacher said, you can make all of those. And that's when the penny dropped. And that's when I decided to, to do it to, to, as, a, as a kind of pursuit. I was like, yes, this is, this is exciting and I'm here for it. So uh, accents can feel like this super intimidating thing. And like you said, it can feel like even the individual sounds, a lot of people don't know if they can make these or not. Like, how can you piece that together? Because when I first got exposure to something like the IPA, the International Phonetic Alphabet, it just looked like a bunch of random symbols. And essentially, I was feeling Im intimidated by the idea of uh, the International Phonetic Alphabet. And when I would talk to my teachers, then they would just repeat the sounds at me. You know, if I want to roll my R's in Spanish, they would just say, it's so easy. It's just R, R. And I'd be like, 
Array. And like, it just, it just feels like this giant chasm. Like, how can you get from one end of it where pronunciation just feels like its own challenge separate to language learning to where you are? Like, what, what are the techniques that you started to learn in this industry? That's a really solid question. I think it hits at the heart of what makes accents for me so fascinating. And I think f- culturally magical. The thing is that they, that speech is science, but I think that culturally we do still kind of see people who can switch between accents and voices as a little bit magical, right? <laughs> it's almost like they've, they've, they've done a magic trick and there's a brand new person there. And that has to do with, I think, the way that pronunciation is taught, which is that largely we leave all of the mechanics of speech up to the individual. Um, and we just demand that that individual get good at seeing and recreating. Um, so, so this is a bit of a tangent and I will get to techniques. I think that your question is really good, but I have to preface it with the, with how humans learn how to speak, which is by mimicry. And so as infants, uh, kind of across languages, you'll notice that a lot of those first words or the first kind of audible phonemes use the lips and are some sort of bilabial, uh, mama, so bringing the lips together or, uh, papa, letting those lips kind of explode. And that has to do with the fact that as babies watch the people around them, the things that they'll copy first are the parts that they can see the most easily. So it's this beautiful portrait of all of these different words for mama and daddy across the world all use these lips and all kind of have this repetition of gesture a little bit like an infant nursing. So, um, so yeah, so we learn the mechanic of, of speech by mimicry, by watching and recreating. And then at a certain point, we as a society decide that language needs to be taught. There are rules and we can sit down and we can kind of study those rules. But at no point do we ever say, ah, the mechanics of speech can be taught. There are, you know, very simple techniques and we can study those techniques. We've left that purely in the realm of mimicry. And so those of us who are uh, uh, fast at mimicry, you know, those of us who can do the multiple accents and the multiple character voices and um, kind of switch effortlessly, those people don't have anything that the rest of us are lacking. It's simply that the process for them is faster. And then the culture rewards them and tells them that they're good. And those of us who are perhaps slower at that process <laughs> don't get that reward. And so culturally, essentially, are told that we're bad. <laughs> um, and that's where I think that intimidation comes from. That fear of being bad at this unspoken tacit skill. So for me, uh, and I, and I will fully cop to this. I am not a very quick language learner, but I am a very fast accent learner. And so for much of my life, the culture rewarded me. Oh, you're so facile. Oh, you speak, you speak clearly or you speak well or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and when I discovered speech training and the IPA and I realized that I was just doing something quickly, but that I had not yet tapped the full potential of what was out there, I got super excited. And it helped me to dive back into the process that I already did, which is observe, mimic, recreate. And so what I would encourage anybody else who gets excited about expanding their accent 
inventory, I would encourage them to come back to a process that they have already mastered. Disregard how fast or slow you are. Come back to that process of mimicry. If you need to tell yourself that you're a baby, tell yourself that you're a baby and watch a speaker, watch what they're doing, slow what they're doing down, if you can, recreate it, but treat yourself with the same energy you might treat an infant learning to speak. So if you don't get it right, there's no way you would say, stupid baby, bad baby, can't roll that R. You'd go, okay, all right, how about we take a nap? And we'll wake up from the nap, we'll try it again. And then we'll play with some blocks, and then we'll try it again. Um, remember that it takes children years of constant positive feedback, right? It's the, it's any, any child who's ever received that negative feedback about their speech can tell you how crippling that is to their language journey. Um, so treat yourself like that, that small human learning to speak, give yourself exclusively positive and supportive feedback and uh, appreciate the fact that it may take you a long time. That's my recommendation. I noticed something that you were doing when you were explaining this. And for the benefit of the audience who can't see you, you are being very demonstrative with your mouth shapes um, and saying certain things. And it made me think of something that is actually quite important when you're learning to properly pronounce things in another language is there isn't just the audio aspect of it. There's the visual aspect as well. When you watch a French speaker move their mouth, it moves completely different than the way that an English speaker would move their mouth. So how much of a role does the visual aspect play in learning a dialect or accent? It plays, I would say, the most important role. Um, because when you're dealing with the position um, of a dialect, there's a term called vocal tract posture, which just refers to the way that a speaker holds, holds in the accent, their jaw, their tongue, their lips. And this can can function like a home base. So the sounds of the language will kind of orbit around this home base gesture shape, um, like planets around a sun. And if you find it, all of those sounds become so much easier. They're, they're within grasp. This is, it, it can feel like a, like a no-brainer for those of us who start there. But for those of us where posture isn't like the intuitive first place, I think in terms of language learning, this can feel like a hack. Like once you get the posture, you're like, oh, now I have all the cheat codes because now my tongue is perfectly positioned to make that vowel that before was tricky. There's a, there's a term called um, thinking sound, which just refers to that kind of nonverbal, audible sound that escapes from a speaker when they know they want to say something, but they're not sure what that thing is. Um, sometimes these are called filler sounds or nonverbals. Um, I like thinking sound because it implies that sort of process. So you know you want to say something, but you're not sure what that thing is. And I like those when in language learning and in accent learning because I feel that they're kind of like the litmus test of the posture. Um, it's where all the articulators want to go when they want to be as close as possible to all the sounds in the accent. Uh, kind of like a goalie going to the center of the goal when they know that the ball is going to come eventually. Um, so you'll start to see patterns within accents, within speakers, specifically in kind of like American English. You'll hear a lot of, uh, and, um, 
And then in like UK English, you'll hear a lot of like, uh, and, um, and then in like, uh, South American Spanish and, uh, uh, and North American Spanish, you'll hear a lot of, eh, eh, European French, you'll hear, hear a lot of, Ireland, you'll hear a lot of, um, um, et cetera. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's not a rule, but it can be a, a fantastic way into that posture. No, it's absolutely true. People think of the uh, most articulate aspects of a language as passing yourself off as a native speaker. But it, it would be very well argued that the, this, uh, these thinking sounds would uh, be even more of an authentic way to present yourself. Like if somebody said that M the way you had just said it uh, when trying to speak English, I would think they'd have an Irish accent even if they were missing out on all the other aspects to it, because it's just such a central part of how the language works. Uh, definitely agree with that. Now, um, oh, I, just, I just said it myself. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that I, my personal experience when it comes to um, speech training is, uh, is twofold. Firstly, I actually went to speech therapy when I was growing up. I had difficulty pronouncing basic sounds in English. So this has influenced in my life, my, my whole thought process that I can learn things late. And anyone listening to this will think, oh, I'm too old to pick up accents. I would tell you I was too old to pick up accents and I still did it. I went to speech therapy and I still uh, became an accomplished speaker of, of other languages. The second experience I have, I had was when I was trying to Reduce my foreign accent in Brazilian Portuguese. And the way I did that was I hired a singing teacher. And the singing teacher gave me such an interesting view into the, the phonemes of the language and the way they were teaching me how to sing would really open up my eyes. And uh, she would tell me that uh, I sounded like a robot because I had this Germanic way of speaking. But when you're speaking Portuguese from Brazil, you got to put the words together and speak through your nose. And I kind of applied that to my Portuguese and it made a world of difference. Now, even so, that was with a music teacher who's uh, like the goal was ultimately to get me to sing in Portuguese. And these are just a lot of a lot of side benefits. So I am so curious to how does that translate into how you would be coaching somebody in their accent. Like, what does that look like? One aspect is, like you said, the, the, um, uh, the vocal posture, as it were, and even like showing them directly what they're doing in their mouth. But like what other parts of coaching come into play there? Because it can, it just, it just seems so fascinating to me. Well, everybody's journey is a little bit unique. Uh, and that's part of the reason why I think that uh, working like you did one-on-one -on -one with a coach is just the most efficient way. Um, especially when you're talking about dialect, uh, dialect and accent are these systems, right? You, you can kind of point to it's these sounds, it's these shapes, it's these patterns of stress or emphasis. Sure. Uh, but they have to be realized inside an individual body. So you do really want somebody who's just looking at you and talking about what's happening inside of your vocal tract. So starting from the lips and all the way down to the vocal folds or the vocal cords, uh, you are pretty unique. And the things that come easily to you will be unique. And the things that are challenging to you will be unique. So 
again, I think find somebody who's excited to talk about you, excited to help you on your journey. When I work one-on-one with a, with a, a performer, I work with a lot of actors, but I work with a lot of non-performers as well. We talk about everything in terms of the body and air and the way that the body can get in the way or shape the flow of air. And sometimes that air is just breath and sometimes that air is, has phonation. But the more we can get physical and technical, the better. There's a lot of elements of accent. There's, uh, like I mentioned, there's posture. I'll talk about the kind of way we hold things. There's pronunciation, and that has to do with individual phoneme uh, realization. So that might be something as simple as, oh, I want you to use the tip of your tongue to make a sort of a, a, a seal, and then I want you to send air out through your nasal passage. And sometimes a person will say, well, and I'll say, like this, and I'll show and do, mm, and they'll go, oh, oh, like an N. And I'll, I'll have to say, you're so smart. Let's take it back away from like the, the units of language and let's just put it in your body. Let's just focus on what that physically means. Um, undoing the kind of um, shortcuts that your brain has built around language is a big part of accent learning. Bringing it back to physical knowledge, muscle memory, that's a big part of accent learning. Um, having fun. I know that sounds <laughs> kind of cheesy, but if it's not like on some level joyful and pleasurable to the physical instrument, you won't want it to continue. So there's that. Um, and then uh, the kind of final piece that I find is something that uh, doesn't get as much attention as the other pieces is the, the rhythm and the stress and the prosody. So prosody is just a word that means kind of melody and stress and rate, volume, pitch, all of those things. Um, something that I find really, really useful to the individual speaker is um, breaking down this idea of how we communicate what's important. And I mean that on a very kind of basic, super, super structural level, not an intellectual like what is important, but like if I'm saying the sentence in English, I love my dog. If I'm, if I think that the dog is the most important part of that sentence, I'm going to put emphasis on that. And that's going to shift depending on what accent I'm doing. But in my home accent, this sort of general American accent, I'll do it by sliding down in pitch, not lengthening so much, not really getting, changing the volume, just changing my pitch so that it sounds like I love my dog. But culturally, that exists as a marker of importance. And therefore, the person I'm talking to goes, ah, oh, yes, indeed. But perhaps they say something to me like, oh, I thought you hate your dog. All of a sudden, I'm going to repeat the same sentence. But the important word becomes love because they're confused and they need to be said straight. So I move my stress. I love my dog. And they go, ah, oh, now I'm clear. Let's move forward with the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so something as simple as that puts a lot of power suddenly in the, the choice of the speaker. So when I'm working on a dialect, one of the things that I like to do after we've covered posture and we've covered pronunciation is I will get to, uh, because I always work from native speakers, I'll, I'll say, we have to figure out how this person is letting you know what's important. And then you just want to mimic that tactic. It's not, it's not bad to fully parrot. You should want to mimic and take away all of the stigma that, that might exist for, for someone to, to copy. 
So, uh, yeah, I feel like I've perhaps gone off topic, but those are my, those are my steps. So we've been talking about a lot of different vocabulary involved in the way we speak, like pitch and um, emphasis and everything. But I think really two of the important words that we've brought up here that I think we could spend some time maybe breaking down and differentiating are dialect and accent. And these are two things that you deal with regularly. So I'd love your take on these two. Absolutely. I think that I will tell you the, the definitions that I'm working with because there are some variants in definition in the community too. So specifically in the United States, when we're talking about accent versus dialect, the definitions that I'm moving from are accent being the collection of sounds that an individual speaker uses. And that's phonemes, sounds, units of language. And dialect refers to the word choice and to a certain degree, the syntax. But all of that is encompassed. So uh, if I'm talking about a New York accent, it might include the sounds or and I. Um, and I'm talking about New York dialect. It might include the words um, coffee. But it also might include the words, let me see, what are you only here in New York? Uh, get, get online instead of get in line. Get online. Yeah. yeah. Get online. Yeah. I'm just trying to think like now I'm totally blanking on dialect, like slang terms that are exclusive to New York City. But I don't know if you were going to get pizza, you might call it a slice rather than a piece of pizza. You're like, you, well, let's go. We'll get a slice. So that's that's the differentiation that I'm making. Um, often for someone learning, these two can be interchangeable. So I don't know that anyone should be too worried about switching them or, or, or using them interchangeably. I do know that, uh, in the UK, uh, sometimes accent is specifically for different accents of English and dialect refers specifically to accents from English as second language speakers. So accents that originate from the sounds that are brought from another language, um, which I think is an, an interesting distinction, but not the one that I move from. Yeah, I've definitely heard a range of people who would come to me and claim they have no accent, which uh, I would, of course, beg to differ with, you know. But when uh, one thing, of course, that's very interesting is your line of work. So I'm sure you have a lot of uh, fascinating stories and like what kind of people come to you uh, and what problems do they have that uh, that you've helped them with over the years? Well, I think the large percentage of my work is done with performers um, and that can be for theater, it can be for film or television. Often I'll get a, an actor or performer who wants to increase their kind of knowledge. And so they'll just work to be more facile um, with their vocal instrument. A lot of my work is very specific to the project. So an actor will uh, start working with me for a specific role. Uh, and then that way we just focus exclusively on one accent. And most of the time we are zoned in on native speakers. So we're kind of immersing ourselves in this very, very specific set of sounds. Um, the approach is the same. It's to give the performer power over their instrument um, and just increase their awareness. Um, I love the term phonemic awareness, which talks about being able to hear the difference between two sounds. Oftentimes, our brain won't differentiate between two sounds unless we need we need it for language. So like before I started to genuinely learn French, 
Um, there was no difference for me between two and two. I was like, that's the same. Um, but I didn't have that phonemic awareness. And so the more that I learned, the more that I was able to associate two different meanings between, uh, to those two sounds. And then I, I grew the sort of awareness to hear them. That's what performers are building. They're building a phonemic inventory and an awareness to, to make sense of those patterns. And they're, they're learning muscle memory, essentially. They're, they're building themselves a muscle memory. I also work with many people who are, want to use the skills of accent for their, their job, just for presentation. They need to be able to speak in an environment where their home accent or, or simply their, their speech, just their, their amount of, um, uh, physical kind of flexibility is not communicating what they need to communicate. And, they, and sometimes this is because they have international audience. Sometimes this is because um, they don't have a lot of physical practice uh, reaching a group rather than a one-on-one -on -one speaker one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, the approach will be the same. It'll be physical. It'll be about the, the, the mechanical changes that need to be made in order for the sounds to word I'm looking for is successful. <laughs> the sounds to successfully reach the audience. Yeah. And I, I have, I've meet in, an incredible diversity of people, um, with, uh, with an incredible diversity of relationships to the way they talk. Because Benny, I appreciate you saying that everybody has an accent. Everybody has an accent and some people have more than one. You know what I mean? Some people feel very comfortable switching between the, their multiple accents. All of those are theirs. Accent is identity, but I'm going to add, and let me add on to that. You are allowed as many accents as you want. They're all yours. So that's a, a very joyful part of my work is uh, I hope that anybody who works with me on this, these skills, these physical skills can kind of move forward knowing that they have a little bit more power. They have a little bit more control. Other people are going to have reactions to their accent or accents and they can choose, choose to adjust and take in those opinions or those feelings, or they can choose not to, you know, but that they are no longer at the mercy of the way they speak. Rather, they have uh, power in the way they speak. I want to go back to the example that you gave of being able, being unable to distinguish sounds in French. And I think that that's a really interesting question because I know for a lot of learners, when they start with a new language, there are sounds that are very difficult for them or there are sounds that they just don't hear. So they'll say something to their tutor, for example, and the tutor will be like, no, this. And the student will be like, this. And the teacher goes, no, this. And the student goes, I just said what you said. <laughs> I don't hear what's different. And so I think how do you deal with that? Like where you just can't distinguish the difference between sounds or you can't hear a specific sound the way that it should be said. How do you tackle those? That comes back to that idea again, right? The, the tutor who wants you to mimic them. Um, and that comes back to that's what they've got. That's their, their tactic for taking on sound because it's how they did it. Um, and they don't have any other techniques to help you take on this sound in their defense. They did it. You know what I mean? Like they went through that process. So it does work. It's not the most efficient. Um, so in that case, 
I will, I have a catchphrase that I repeat. Um, it may sound the same, but does it feel the same? And so we do a lot of kind of closing of the eyes or taking away one of the five senses and allowing that kind of awareness to grow inside the instrument. Um, so yeah, yeah. I had, I had a similar situation where someone was trying to teach me how to say their name and they, they were saying Ahmed and I was saying Ahmed and they were like, no, no. And we had to slow it down so much that I closed my eyes. I was standing in the middle of the road. I was closing my eyes, um, trying to feel air in my nose, in my body. I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm going to get there. And they were just very patient. Like, yeah, yeah, you're going to get there. You're going to get there. Um, I would bring it back to how it feels. I would close my eyes, even if I was standing in the middle of the road. Um, and uh, yeah, just try to slow that down. Yeah, fun fact, I, the name on my ID is actually Brendan. And I got so frustrated when I first started traveling uh, of explaining how to pronounce that. But this is why I've stuck with Benny, because it's so much easier. There's a, <laughs> you know, even a unique way of saying that word that does not quite sound like a character from 90210 that a lot of my American friends would, would say it. So I, I, I can, I, I can definitely understand that uh, level of frustration. Um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I think it's so great that you, you made that choice. I'm there. I'm right there with you. I think that when people are trying, you get to decide when they've tried enough. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, I do the same thing when I'm traveling. My name will shift depending on the sounds of the accent and the place where I am. Uh, and, and I think it has to do a lot with the work that I do kind of on a daily basis where I get to appreciate that when you go to a new place, there's just a new set of sounds. And so you can just, uh, you can kind of like use the sounds that are there to mean the same thing. Yeah, to anybody who's having that moment of I really can not hear hear this sound, I, I would recommend if you can try to find it in 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 a word, right? And then I want you to try to find that word displayed in kind of like extreme emotions. Um, there's something about when people are portraying extreme emotions, uh, they're they're liberal with their vocal tract posture. They're generous with their vocal tract posture. And that can be really helpful to you. In normal connected speech, your articulators are taking the most economic route, basically. They're using as little energy as possible. But if you're in a kind of heightened situation, uh, I'm just gonna use a, a like an example. Uh, let's say you're, you're learning English and it's uh, the sound that's really giving you a hard time is and for those of you who can't see me, I just took the tip of my tongue, I brought it to the back of my front teeth, and then I let out a little bit of a kind of a friction release of unvoiced air. So there's no phonation. And you might find that uh, at the beginning of uh, an English word like think or thin. Um, but it's really frustrating for you. You're really kind of like, oh, I can't, you know, I, I don't feel like I can manifest this. Um, Go to YouTube, the <laughs> source of all kind of visual foolery, and see if you can just type in a word that you know needs this. Um, and look for people in state, states of extreme emotion. You know, uh, if you think that I'm gonna, you know, and, and slow the, the footage down and you can watch people be really overt 
with how they use their articulators, right? They're not worried about the most economic use at all. In fact, they're trying to, they're trying to be heavy handed. They're trying to be obvious. If you think and then allow yourself to be that obvious. I've heard that one way to learn the accent of a language that you're learning. So for example, for you, French, uh, would be to learn to use that accent in your native language. So to speak English with a French accent, and that'll help you develop the French sounds and carry them over into French itself. Have you heard anything like this? Or are there any other neat tricks that you've been able to employ from your dialect experience to learning a language? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think that's a fascinating journey. Um, to either way, what you're trying to do is you're trying to corral the group of sounds that you're using. So speaking English with a French accent and then trying to speak French. Sure. Sure. I see, I see the way that that would happen physically. I see the way that makes sense. I, th- <laughs> I think what I might suggest instead would be to sort of corral that group of sounds. Cause you can, you can find out exactly what phonemes are going to be used in the language that you're learning, kind of corral that group of sounds and then speak gibberish, like a nonsense that uses those sounds. That might be an even quicker route, keeping it very physical, um, but not being tempted by the sounds of your own language to make phonemes that are exclusive to your home accent. When I was, <laughs> when I, of the languages that I have been learning, I, I have, I'm guilty of doing that exact thing, that gibberish thing almost all the time. Um, <laughs> because, because as a language learner, I'm like, I think equally split between someone who is very like comfortable being a person in process. And then that person who's like, I don't want to be a language learner. I want to be a language speaker. Like I want it to be done. I want the process to be finished and I would like to speak it. So I think I I play pretend often and do that kind of gibberish where I'm like, I'm already there. I'm already there. I've got it all under control. Um, But I find that these are all muscles. And so when you do warm them up in a very specific shape, you're prepped to do that activity. It makes all of my speaking easier. Um, and, uh, and it does also help me to sort of not stray into habits from other languages. I use something called a springboard phrase, which is, uh, <laughs> a term that I've totally invented, but it just means a phrase that when I speak it, it springs boards me into the language. Um, and a lot of times I'll use my own name. So if I'm trying to work on French, um, I'll say, je suis Elisa, Elisa, je suis Elisa. And then if I have to go and work on Spanish, I'll be like, mi nombre Elisa, El, Elisa, Elisa, Elisa. And it takes me a minute, right? Like I'm like, mi nombre Elisa, 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 Elisa. And then I look around and I notice all the people staring at me and I'm like, <laughs> bye. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and it's just me. It's just my name. So yeah, <laughs> I will, I will try to kind of shift my vocal tract posture. And I find that that's a great way, not only to get myself primed for, you know, basic conversation practice, but also, um, uh, a, a mind game for myself for like, okay, we, we're closing that particular compartment of the brain, we're opening this particular compartment of the brain, um, helps me to transition. So for people listening who uh, may want to be improving their own 
like accent and pronunciation issues in other languages. You've mentioned several tips today. You've mentioned uh, the uh, vocal posture. You've mentioned that, you know, you could try to say your own name and try to say gibberish in uh, the language. But in general, like, are there other things that you can recommend to people who maybe don't have access to a speech trainer that just want to be able to improve their accent to, to be as authentic as it possibly can be? What things can they do by themselves? So my number one tip is to prioritize a model, find that person, that native speaker who speaks with an authentic accent and like absolutely commit, like trust that the answers are there and they're going to come from that speaker, but also do not require that speaker to be an expert at breaking down how to do the thing that they do very naturally. Let's say you have a a language partner and they, because they will probably want to respond to your questions with a, with a, like me, do it like me or see the way that I'm doing it. Do it like that. Um, they, they understand it on a very physical level. Um, but they, you know, it's not their, that's not their job to be able to tell you exactly how they're doing the minutiae of what they're doing. So I would then let your, um, kind of study brain go to linguistics, find, uh, find the IPA. It's this really wonderful resource and it looks overwhelming, but, um, it is very, very come as you are. Like it's one symbol to one speech gesture. And so, uh, come to that, try to use that as much as possible. Try to, try to slow things down. There are a lot of communities out there, linguistic communities that will happily answer your questions. You know, I, I'm hearing this sound and you can, don't be afraid of making a mistake. Uh, don't be afraid of saying the wrong thing in a linguistics community because the beauty of linguistics is that people want to, people want to kind of debate it anyway. So you put something out there, they'll give you a response. They'll give you a second response. They'll give you a third opinion. You know, there are forums in terms of the mechanics of speech that will respond to you. And that's where you should look for that detail. You want to use native speakers as your sort of touchstone but you don't need them to be experts at telling you how to do what they do. On a similar note, one of the questions that we like to ask all of the guests who come on the podcast with us, given that this is the language hacking podcast, would be what is your version of language hacking? Oh, that's a great question. Um, Okay. Okay. I, I feel like my answer is probably not new, but maybe I could shine a light on it. I like watching comedy from the culture of the language that I'm trying to learn uh, for a couple of reasons that are linguistic and a couple of reasons that are personal. So linguistically, it's not a rule, but it is very common that in comedy, there are these heightened emotions, right? Uh, there's a reason why people who are trying to learn English uh, prefer friends over like true detective. You know what I mean? There's just, so in these heightened emotions, there's a lot more to be seen on the face um, and in speech. So that's what I rely on. Uh, it's a, I watch a lot of comedy, especially since I find that like there's words that get repeated, but with a lot of variation and, and kind of personal flavor. 
the second reason that I, I like watching comedy is that um, I think that comedy is one of those things that shifts so specifically culture to culture. You know, we might all laugh, but the things that the things that people find funny in France will be different than the things that people find funny in the United States or the things that people find funny in Korea. And so I think that that nothing, nothing for me is more effective in sort of shifting my brain, right? I'm, I've, I'm shifting systems and I'm also observing different details. And then I need some sort of cultural touchstone of like, what's funny. And, um, and that seems to, that seems to be a trifecta. Excellent. Well, excellently said there. So for people who are listening, um, how can they find you if they want to see more about your work and uh, what other projects have you, are you going to be working on? Well, lovely. Yes, you can uh, always find me through my website, which is dialectsnow.com, um, dialects plural now.com. Uh, you can find me on uh, also Instagram at dialectsnow, Twitter at dialectsnow, TikTok at dialectsnow. Um, and uh, yeah, if you have a question, if you have a thought, if you have a query or something you think is cool, um, I think uh, the online community is especially kind of Instagram and a TikTok for me because, again, I like the visuals. I think that's the perfect place to trade uh, fun, fun finds and questions and, uh, you know, broach topics that haven't been talked about yet. So find me there. That's where I would recommend you to find me. Um, and and project wise, uh, I've got some some interesting things that are kind of uh, I'm, I'm working on a, a series right now, which is testing me in an interesting way and 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 broadening what I thought that I could bring uh, to uh, to a television series. So that's really exciting. Um, I'm working with a couple of performers right now that are um, are, are really uh, dedicated and awesome. I feel like I'm just saying nice things. Um, and I I host a, a kind of a weekly get together. Um, it's specifically for actors so that, uh, there's, there's that element of kind of like performing a scene, but it's, a, it's a study group. Um, and I call it an accent gym. Um, so on my website, you can see there are signups for the accent gym. If you've always wanted to learn how to perform in an accent and, and that's calling to you, uh, you can check those out as well. Those are a good time. All right. So we'll make sure to have links to all of that in the show notes. And uh, thank you very much. It was very interesting. Appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, until next time, happy language learning. Happy language learning. Happy language learning. All right. So at the end of every episode, Benny and I like to share a takeaway, something that we got out of our chat with our guest. And this is something that we think is immediately actionable. So that means you can put it into practice in your language learning right away. Uh, Benny, what was your takeaway from Eliza's chat? So what I found very interesting is Eliza breaks away a little bit from traditional language learning, and she brings a lot of linguistics into the onto the table, as it were. And something she said that I found really interesting was to reach out to people who happen to specialize in linguistics for your language learning problems. And I, I've never thought about that before, that generally I would think if I run into a language problem, it's maybe a grammar or vocabulary issue. And I need to ask an, either a native speaker or more ideally a teacher who's experienced in talking about that. 
But if it's pronunciation based or maybe a very technical part of the language, I might actually want to go to linguistics communities, regardless of if there's a native speaker or not. Somebody may be able to show me how to get a particular pronunciation or understand the uh, the history behind uh, word origins. And there's a lot of ways that linguists can help us as language learners. And of course, in today's case, the overlap with um, with speech training has a lot of linguistics behind it. So it's a fascinating subject and I'm hoping to learn more about it myself. And today was a good reminder for that. For me, it was the idea of having a springboard phrase to get into another language or another accent or another dialect. And I think this is really useful because one of the problems that a lot of learners or speakers face is code switching. And that's where you shift from one language into the next. And there are things that you can do to prepare. They take a little bit of time, but maybe the idea of a spring having a springboard phase will help you make that transition quicker. So I really like that idea. And I think it's something that I may put into practice myself. And my springboard phase may not be my name is Shannon, but perhaps something more along the lines of even just sorry, one moment. So for example, if I were to switch into Hungarian from English, I would just say like, Bojana, And like that one phrase could be my like transition phrase, like I'm in Hungarian mode now. And so I think that'll be something really interesting to experiment with for me in the coming weeks to see how much that helps me transition my brain from one language to the next. All right. That's it for this episode. Again, if you enjoyed this podcast, we appreciate your reviews and you can leave us your review at languagehacking.com slash review. And you can find all of the notes that we mentioned as far as resources, links to find what Eliza is working on and doing and everything else in the show notes for this episode. And you can find the link to that below. In the meantime, happy language learning. Happy language learning. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis and Shannon Kennedy and produced by David Sobel, with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. Theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and happy language learning.